All right, church family, help me out. Knock, knock. Justin. Just in time to say happy Father's Day to all the amazing dads in our congregation. What better way to celebrate Father's Day than a few dad jokes, right? Uh, I don't know what you plan to get uh, your dad for Father's Day this year, but you know what the, uh, the baby panda got his daddy for Father's Day. A bear hug. You know what they call someone who makes a, uh, a dad joke who isn't really a dad? A faux pas. <laughs> and we, we, we know that, uh, that Father's Day isn't a Christian holiday per se, but we do know the Bible tells us that we should honor our fathers and mothers. And so if uh, you were blessed with a dad who loved you well and invested in your life and was a good role model celebrate that today. And in fact, I know some of you might be sitting by your dad, and if that's the case, maybe you just want to reach over right now and give him a pat on the back and, and say thanks. Say, good job, dad. Yeah. And um, tomorrow, we will celebrate Juneteenth. And that day, June 19, 1865, was a, a significant step in our nation's history to form that more perfect union where we recognized that uh, all men should be free because all men and women are created in God's image. And I'll just say, may God help us to be a people who would continue to champion freedom and justice and equality for all people. Well, I'm going to invite you to help me out once more, this time um, on a little bit more serious note. What do you see here? Do you, do you see a duck? How many see a duck? Probably most of us, that was the first I saw. How about anybody see a rabbit? Oh, yeah, okay, about even. Well, depending on which way you look at it, it can be either one. And this is the optical illustration that Thomas Kuhn used to illustrate the way in which a paradigm shift can cause one to see the same information in an entirely different way. A paradigm shift is a, is a major change that happens when the usual way of thinking about something is replaced by a new and different way. So as an example of this, a thousand years ago, most people believed that the earth was the center of the universe. And this belief created a framework for understanding life and the geocentric paradigm prevailed for centuries until Copernicus postulated that the sun was the center of our solar system. And as Copernicus's theory was put to the test and subjected to inquiry, you know what happened. Scientists began to question many of their previously held beliefs, and there was this fundamental shift in the way that people saw the world. Well, this morning, um, this, is, uh, this isn't exactly modest, but uh, I hope to instigate a paradigm shift. That's pretty lofty ambition, but um, that's kind of the hope here. And the, and the outline for the message is pretty simple. First, we're going to look at the current paradigm our culture embraces for answering the question, how can I live my best life? Uh, we'll give thought to the basic beliefs that undergird this paradigm and the potential downsides to this approach. And then second, we'll explore an alternative paradigm for answering the same question. We'll look at the basic beliefs that undergird this framework and we'll see how it offers solutions to the problems found with the, the first paradigm, the previous paradigm. So when it comes to answering the question, how can I live my best life, what's the current paradigm? Well, what's assumed today 
what sort of just passes as, as common sense, is that the purpose of life is to look inside yourself, discover your deepest desires, and then express yourself to the world, no matter what anyone else might say. Author Trevin Wax in his book, Rethink Yourself, is really helpful here. So I want to give credit to where credit is due and acknowledge that I'm drawing from his work. He says that we can understand the prevailing paradigm in our society by noting the order, or the sequence, we could say, in the way one orients their thoughts. He notes that our, our culture assumes that in the quest to live a meaningful life, that we should begin with looking in first, then looking around, and then finally looking up. And I, I'd like to tease that out a bit. What do I mean by looking in? Well, when it comes to life's biggest questions like, what is the core of your being? Or what makes you you? Or how can you know your true identity? The assumption is that only you can know the answers to these questions. And you discover the answers by looking deep within, by listening to your heart. And so the starting place for figuring out your best life, it really begins with an inward orientation. I know many of our, our high school seniors graduated last weekend, and hopefully this wasn't the case at the Lawrence Joel Coliseum, but in recent decades, the main point of many a commencement address has been something along the lines of, stay true to yourself. In his book, Don't Be True to Yourself, Kevin DeYoung cites an excerpt from a speech given by a Pulitzer Prize winning author, and, and the speaker gives this advice to the graduating class. She says, never follow anyone's path. Each of you is as different as your fingertips. Why should you march to any lockstep? Our love of lockstep is the greatest curse, the source of all that bedevils us. It is the source of homophobia, xenophobia, racism, sexism, terrorism, bigotry of every variety and hue because it tells us that there is no right way to do things, to look, to behave, to feel, when the only right way to feel is to feel your heart hammering inside you and to listen to what its tempany is saying. Uh, this same advice shows up in popular slogans you might find on t-shirts or posters or bumper stickers. You've probably seen some of these. If you want to live your best life, then you do you. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Earlier this week, I was out and about, and I noticed someone wearing a t-shirt that read, be fearless in the pursuit of what sets your soul on fire. And I got to thinking about that, and I was like, okay, did I remember this right? And so a couple hours later, uh, I got on Google, and I just did t-shirt, and I wrote down that quote as best as I could remember it. And it turns out, like, I'm Johnny come late to the party, because apparently this is a really popular quote. And uh, people have it pinned everywhere. You can buy artistic renderings of this on like Etsy and Amazon and Walmart. And I just clicked on like the first link that came up because I wanted to understand the meaning of the quote better. I, I, I like the idea of um, being fearless, of being courageous. Uh, I like the idea of being intentional, of not being complacent with our lives. But it was the last part of the quote that uh, I was a little confused by. I was uncertain what was meant by that. And so here's what I found out on leadingtounlock.com. Uh, here's what it says. What sets your soul on fire? This is the most impactful part of the quote. Setting your soul on fire comes from within. No one can do this for you. 
contemplate these questions, and I won't read all of them, but I will share the last one with you. What does happiness look like for you? So fundamental to this paradigm adopted by our culture is that discovering your authentic self is a deeply personal act, and no one else can do this for you. Only you are responsible for defining yourself. And when we look within ourselves, uh, how exactly does that help us define ourselves? Well, when we look within, we get in touch with our deepest desires. How do you know what will make you happy and will allow you to experience your best life? Well, first you need to uncover your longings so that you can truly follow your heart. As Trevin Wax summarizes it, your desires determine your destiny. And then once you've discovered your desires and you've defined your identity accordingly, you put yourself on display. You show the world who you really are. You manifest what makes you unique in the pictures that you post and the clothes that you wear and the way you present yourself to your friends and classmates and coworkers. And this leads to looking around. As we begin to display the identity that we have created for ourselves, the next step in the quest for fulfillment is to surround yourself with people who will affirm who you are. Uh, you seek out others who will cheer you on and celebrate your quest to follow the deepest longings of your heart. And, and for many, the quest uh, for fulfillment ends right here, but others who look in and then around still get the sense that something's missing. And so they decide to look up as a, as a last resort, as a means of adding a spiritual dimension to their lives. And this might come through attending a church service like this or some spiritual disciplines or uh, maybe reading uh, the Bible on occasion or some other spiritual literature. But here's what happens. If you begin with looking in, then your relationship with God is going to be established on your terms. Uh, the church simply becomes a place to receive assistance in being true to yourself. Said another way, religion is about marshalling support for a path that has already been chosen. It's about leveraging faith in the pursuit of, of your self-expression. And the reason that we can say, uh, look in to discover yourself, then look around for affirmation, and finally look up for inspiration. The reason we can say this is a paradigm is because it's the default way of thinking for many in our culture. The approach isn't question. It's just assumed to be true. Especially among young people, there's the unconscious assumption that, that happiness and satisfaction come from searching our heart. A recent survey revealed that 86% of Americans, when asked about happiness, agreed with this statement. To be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. But let's think about that for a moment. What happens when we test the workability of what I will call the egocentric paradigm? Well, I'd say in the same way that looking through Galileo's telescope revealed some problems with the geocentric worldview, when we put the egocentric paradigm under the microscope, when we subject this to scrutiny, we'll see some complications. And I want to highlight just two of those. First, the paradigm assumes that our desires are an infallible guide. But doesn't life experience 
tell us that there needs to be a mechanism for questioning whether or not our desires will truly make us happy? Does anyone else know someone who's maybe chased long and hard after what they thought they wanted, only to feel, end up feeling maybe a little empty or unfulfilled once they achieved it? If you want a biblical example, go check out the story of Amnon in 2 Samuel 13. He wanted Tamar, and eventually he got what he wanted, and afterwards he was still miserable. If you want a more contemporary example, uh, you can listen to the lyrics of John Mayer's song, Something's Missing. W what experience should teach us is that our hearts, and I'm referring to our hearts here as the, as the seat of our desire, our hearts don't always tell us what will truly make us happy and fulfilled. Sometimes our hearts can lie to us. Our desires can deceive us. You, you see, the paradigm assumes that, that if we desire it, then it must be good for us. But how can we know if our hearts are telling us the truth? Or what happens, here's a good question, what happens when we look deep within our hearts and we have desires that come into conflict with one another? I mean, the fact that we can have competing desires is central to the subplot of every Hallmark movie. Hear me out on this. Here, here is the secret to a good Hallmark movie. Either the lead actor or the lead actress uh, needs to be career-driven. Uh, they, they have to be striving for uh, the next big promotion, the next rung on the ladder. Uh, but what happens is, is uh, they find themselves in this small town that begins to grow on them, and they find it captivating and charming and there, there's something beautiful about it and so they want that at the same time and then and then 10 minutes before the movie ends right there comes this crisis because the big promotion is finally offered and the only problem is it's going to necessitate a relocation and, and so it's it's decision time how do you know which desire is best to follow when your desires are at odds with each other? Do you just pick the stronger of the two desires? Is that the right answer every time? What about if you're married and you sense an intense physical attraction to someone other than your spouse? What about a great movie, Casablanca? What about when Humphrey Bogart's character, Rick, tells Eliza that she needs to get on the plane? And yet there's that chemistry between them. He says, no, go, go with your husband. Was he wrong to make that decision? Or, or what about if what you desire will be harmful to you or hurtful to someone else, like a spouse or a child? If you've ever talked to an addict, you know that that desire for a drink or a hit can be one of the strongest desires that we can ever experience. The bottom line is, Identifying your deepest desire and then pursuing it doesn't always result in a fulfilled life. Life experience tells us this. A second problem with the egocentric approach is that we end up missing out on true friendships. When looking in is the starting place, what happens when we do look around is that we'll gravitate to people who will affirm our desires and celebrate the way that we've chosen to define ourselves. And the reason for this is because our identity is inseparably connected to our desires. And when that happens, then if someone isn't affirming of our desires, we'll sense that they're, they're attacking the very core of our being. 
they're targeting us. They're being hateful. But if all our friends do is just cheer us on for marching to the beat of our own drum and for coloring outside the lines, do we really have real friends? And I would submit to you that really what you have are some fragile relationships. True friends are those who are committed to you no matter what, but real friends must also be allowed to call you out. Proverbs 27, 6 says this, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. In other words, in true friendship, there is truth and love. So if, if your friendships are restricted to those who just accept you as you are and they celebrate you as you are and they're going to hit the like button on your page no matter what you post, full stop, that's it. Then what happens is all we get from our friends is total affirmation. And our relationships are going to be based on, on flattery and not reality. And friendships, uh, rather than becoming deeper, become shallower. If they're just reduced to praising each other for someone's self-display of the identity that they've created for themselves. But what about if there was another way to approach the, uh, the quest for a meaningful life? Well, there is an alternative paradigm. And the reason I say that this makes for a paradigm shift is because it isn't simply a couple of tweaks to the, to the prevailing framework. It is a complete reversal of it. The alternative approach to living your best life is just the exact opposite. It begins with looking up first, then looking around, and finally looking in. And I'll call this approach the theocentric paradigm because in, instead of taking one's self as the starting point, this approach says that we begin with God as the central focus. And, and why begin with God as instead of ourselves. Well, the Bible makes the claim that God is the creator of the universe. Colossians 1.16 says this about Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So God claims to be the creator. He tells us not just that he created us, but we're created for him. We're not created for ourselves. And so his design for our lives is the one that matters most. Now, if there's no creator, we'd be free to create whatever identity we wanted for ourselves. And that's what we see happening in our culture when people embrace the paradigm that begins with looking in. Even the human body is an object with no intrinsic meaning. We're free to use modern technology to, to craft and shape it however we want because our identity isn't something we receive from God. Rather, it's something we create. Uh, we impose it. We get to define our own reality. If you begin with looking in, it, like the first paradigm, God's role as a creator, it's minimized at best and it's expunged at worst. And when we regulate God to the back seat, what happens is each one of us takes on the role of creator for ourselves. We get to decide the terms of our existence. We decide what will fulfill us and give our lives purpose, what our design is. And the reason these two paradigms are incompatible is because you can't have two creators. 
And when you embrace that look-in approach, what happens is you assume the role of creator. And we've seen that doesn't always work out because one of the reasons is we don't know ourselves like we think we do. But let's see what happens when we start with God. Recognizing God to be the creator and mankind to be his creation, the psalmist shares the ramifications of this in Psalm 139 when he writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Because God is our creator, what we see in this passage is that God knows us infinitely better than we know ourselves. And because he made us, he knows how we can experience fulfillment and become the best version of ourselves. And this is why King David concludes the psalm by looking up and praying this prayer that you see right here. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Because he acknowledges God to be his creator, King David also concedes that it makes sense for God's opinions to matter most, for his thoughts to hold the most sway over his life. And some might object to beginning with God, to letting God define their identity and inviting him to, to lead us. They might say, well, I don't know, this sounds like a loss of autonomy. I don't want someone else telling me who I am and what to do with my life. I want to be, I want to be free to create myself, to invent myself, to, to define myself. I like my freedom. But what we see is that when we look to God, it's really like the type of freedom a, a fish experiences in water or the type of freedom a, a train experiences when it stays on the tracks. Sure, there are, there are some constraints, but they don't limit your potential. Uh, they're parameters, in fact, that enable you to become the person God designed you to be. You're the truest version of yourself when you seek to become the person God has created you to be. And then... When you look around, uh, you can cultivate meaningful friendships. If we begin with looking in, when we look around, it's to receive affirmation for that path that we've chosen. But when we look up first, we know our identity and our, our actions, our desires aren't one and the same. And as a result, our friendships can go deeper. All, all of the acceptance is still there because Jesus tells us that we're to love one another as he loved us. And that means that when we as Christians, when we relate to one another, we extend forgiveness, uh, grace, unconditional love. And so just like with the first paradigm, just like with looking in, we are fully accepted. And yet at the same time, we aren't threatened when someone challenges us because our identity is not wrapped up in anything that we do. It's wrapped up in what Jesus did for us. And we know that God's design for our lives is that we reflect his image. And we also recommend, uh, recognize that being conformed to his image, that this is a lifelong journey. And, and one that's aided by the support and encouragement and, and accountability of others. And, and so in our friendships, there exists this beautiful blend 
of acceptance and affirmation. Or um, I, I would say um, maybe a better word would be aspiration. We know that we're loved just as we are. And yet, because we desire to become more like Jesus, we welcome the input of others to help us in that quest. We recognize that we still have a sin nature. And as a result, um, there can still be things like pride and self-centeredness in our lives that we can even rationalize at times. And so when others are speaking truth into our lives that might be hard to hear, it doesn't mean it needs to sever the friendship. I mean, we can acknowledge that it might not feel good to hear about a particular shortcoming, but at the end of the day, we can be grateful that we have friends that love us enough that they would willingly endure that discomfort and that awkwardness that would come from um, standing in front of us and speaking truth into our lives, even if it might upset us, if it means it's going to help us become more like Jesus. So we, we look up to see who God says that we are, and then we look around for acceptance and encouragement, or we could say for truth and love. And then finally, we look in because we recognize that our hearts are full of conflicting desires. And the point of Christianity isn't to repress our desires, rather it's to have our desires reoriented on what will give us the greatest joy. Uh, Psalm 37, 4 says this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you, help me out, what does it say? The desires of your heart. When we set our delight on God, when, when looking up comes first, what happens is he replaces our old desires with new desires. And at times, it might be difficult. It, it might feel painful to let go of some of those old desires. But as we walk with God, those new desires he gives us, uh, the desire to make much of him, the desire to, to, to do his will, these desires become stronger and they're going to bring far more delight into our life than following any of our old desires for, for, for our own pleasure ever could. I don't know how many of you follow college sports, but about 10 days ago, Oklahoma State won the Women's Softball National Championship. And the other day I was listening to a podcast that shared an excerpt from a, a post-game interview that had taken place. And I want to let these young women have the last word this morning. They don't explicitly reference the two paradigms we talked about, but in their remarks, you'll see that they really reveal a, a deep understanding of the difference between looking in first versus looking up first. I'll start with ESPN for, for the players. I know you talked about keeping the joy of the game, but I'm curious. It's a long season, right? And you guys have had the target on your back the entire time, the win streak being number one. How do you handle the unique pressure that comes with that? How do you keep the joy for so long when anxiety seems like a thing that could very easily set in? Well, the only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. And any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. Um, I think Coach has said this before, but joy from the Lord is really the only thing that can keep you motivated, um, uh, just in a good mindset, uh, no matter the outcomes. Thankfully, we've had a lot of success this year, but if it was the other way around, 
uh, joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you embracing those memories, moments, friendships, and all of that. So uh, I would, that's really the only the only answer to that because there's no other way that softball can bring you that um, because of how much failure comes in it and just how much of a roller coaster the game can be. One thousand percent agree with Grace Lyons. Um, I went through that my freshman year. I. I was so happy to win the college, I've talked about this before, but I'm just so happy that we won the College World Series, but I didn't feel joy. I didn't have, I didn't know what to do the next day. I didn't know what to do for that following week. I didn't feel filled, and I had to find Christ in that, and I think that is what makes our team so strong is that we're not afraid to lose because if it's not the end of the world if we do lose. Yes, obviously, we worked our butts off to be here, and we want to win, but it's not the end of the world because our life is in Christ and that's all that matters. Yeah, um, I think a huge thing that we've really just latched onto is eyes up. And you guys see us doing this and pointing up, but we're really like fixing our eyes on Christ. And that's something where, like they were saying, you can't find a fulfillment in an outcome, whether it's good or bad. And um, I think that's why we're so steady in what we do and, and our love for each other and our love for the game because we know this game is giving us the opportunity to glorify God. Mm -hmm. And um, I just think once we figured that out and that was our purpose and everyone was all in with that, um, it's really changed so much for us. And I mean, I know myself, I, I've seen so much of a growth in myself with um, once I turned to Jesus and I realized how he had changed my outlook on life, not just softball, but understanding how much I have to live for and that's living to exemplify the kingdom. And I think that brings so much freedom yeah. What a, what a powerful testimony, huh? Here the ESPN throws them a question and they just, you know. Man. Uh, but but in, in their own words, you know, I, I hope you caught what they had to say about the emptiness you're going to experience if you go chasing after what you think you desire. But when it's eyes up, when we start with looking up, the freedom and, uh, and the joy that that brings. And, and if you're here and you recognize, ah, you know, I, I've been looking within. I've been starting there thinking that if I go and pursue my desires, this is going to give me uh, my best life. This is going to lead to fulfillment. I want to encourage you, today is the day that you can make the transition, and you can shift the paradigm, and you can look up. I'm just going to invite us all right now just to bow our head and close our eyes. And I'd say if, if you're here, and you know the path that you have been pursuing has been leading to emptiness, and you want to experience some of that freedom and joy that those softball players were talking about. You can make the decision right now to look up. And as you look up, and we recognize God to be our creator and us to be his creation, one of the first things we'll realize is that we have rebelled. That we have not done as we ought. We have cast aside his design for our lives and we've gone and we've chased after what we've wanted. We've tried to impose our will on reality rather than his. And so that relationship that has been severed gets restored 
when we place our faith in Jesus. And if you've never done that before, you can do that right now. You can just say a prayer like this. Jesus, I acknowledge that it's my rebellion. It's, it's my sin that separates me from you. And I thank you that you came and you lived a life where you didn't rebel, where you were in complete submission to the Father. And I thank you that you would bear the penalty for my rebellion and that you would want to give me, just as a gift, your perfect righteousness. And I want to receive that now. Jesus, I embrace you as my Savior and as my Lord, and I want to follow you. Help me to do that now. Thank you for sending your spirit into my life. And all God's people said, amen, amen.